Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Kelly Swales, and I am one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and a writer, and I work in the publications department at ASCP. And my name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ASCP, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. So today we're going to be talking about the laboratory's role in inclusion, and we've got some great guests lined up, and I'm really looking forward to what they have to say. Dr. Upton majored in history at the University of Rochester, earned her MD, and completed her anatomic pathology residency as chief resident at Northwestern University Medical School. She completed a pediatric pathology fellowship at the Children's Hospital in Boston and spent two years in Tokyo at the Nakasone Research Fellow in Pathology at the National Cancer Research Center, studying immunohistochemistry and molecular pathology. During her year as president of AACP in 2018-2019, Dr. Upton launched an initiative around diversity and inclusion, and she currently chairs the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. She feels that inclusion of underrepresented groups into positions of influence and power is essential for health equity. Dr. Daryl Elzey has been an ASCP certified medical technologist for over 30 years and has been performing CAP inspections for 15 of those. He has a master's of health administration from Ashford University, a doctorate of psychology from the University of the Rockies, and a certified quality auditor ASQ. He is a laboratory quality coordinator for Centra Healthcare System and provides laboratory quality oversight for five hospitals and one ambulatory care center. He is also a counselor and life coach. And Dr. Yvette Marie Miller is currently the executive medical officer for the Donor and Client Support Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. She has been with the Red Cross for over 24 years, serving in various leadership capacities, including regional medical director and director of apheresis collections and clinical services. As the executive medical officer for the DCSC, she oversees donor eligibility, product management, and donor management. Dr. Miller is one of the national co-chairs of UMOJA, the African-American team member resource group, whose focus is encouraging and recognizing the contributions of African-American team members and providing professional and personal growth opportunities for its members. Her areas of interest include diversity in the blood supply, donor education, donor recruitment and retention in the African-American community and other underrepresented communities, equitable access to trauma-informed healthcare in under-reserved communities, and use of integrative medicine modalities for personal and community care. Welcome to you all. We're looking forward to a great discussion with you today. How are you doing? Great. Great. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this hour. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation too. But before we get started, I have a little bit of housekeeping. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with their extent of their participation in the activity. Yes, so let's jump right in. Um, This is a question for all of you, really. Uh, What do you see as a laboratory's role in inclusion? 
Who would like to answer first? I guess I'd go first, if that's okay. The laboratory's role is a very important role. We are, the laboratory historically been considered in a corner. Uh, most people in the public and in some areas of healthcare usually think, don't really know what we do. They know they send samples down and the answer comes back. But we know that we are part of that entire industry, that part of that team to deliver quality health care. And who staffs that? That's human beings, human beings who have feelings, human beings who want to feel like they belong, human beings who have goals and aspirations that need to be filled. But also because they are human beings, they, we also have those, what we could say, the negative attributes also. We have our unconscious biases, our prejudice, some of these things that may influence us as the leaders in uh, the laboratory that are affecting our team members. And those are some of the things that we need to address. This is Dr. Miller. And the laboratory is such an important place for diversity and inclusion because almost every person that comes into the hospital, even on an outpatient basis, interface with the laboratory. And so those individuals in the laboratory need to reflect the communities in which we serve because it certainly has a part to play with satisfaction with your um, your experience with your hospital center and with your lab when you see people that look like you. So it is incredibly important for the laboratory department to reflect the communities in which we serve. Absolutely. It's really about that, how important representation is in anything we do, and especially healthcare. Absolutely. Dr. Upton? Thank you. I also would like to emphasize the incredibly important role of phlebotomists as ambassadors to the laboratory. As Dr. Miller indicated, every patient interacts with the lab, and our phlebotomists are our frontline people. Many people who come into my hospital, for instance, are from very diverse communities and don't necessarily speak English, may not be able to read English. When I was in Japan for the two years I lived there, it was a wonderful experience because I was illiterate. And it gave me some empathy into the experiences of someone who cannot navigate a language that in a country where they are currently living or visiting. I also wanted to emphasize that the current tragic pandemic has really emphasized to us that access to testing is related to privilege. If testing is something that you have to pay for, if you have to drive up in a vehicle to get your test, then our testing is not accessible to people without insurance, people in rural areas, people who rely on public transportation. Why do we not have neighborhood-based testing? Part of that is the structural privilege that Dr. Elsie has referred to, that institutions have unconscious biases related to how the dominant who has insurance, who has money, can access care. So I'm very passionate about that because this particular pandemic has really exposed in greater detail than many were aware before of the tremendous disparities in access. And I firmly believe that if more people from underserved and marginalized communities integrated into our leadership in the lab. We would have testing, we would have patient materials in many languages. We would be speaking to patients in ways that they could access and understand. I, I was going to say, I really feel that the area I grew up in, it's, you know, it's an all white community, but it, it's a really rural community. It's a very poor community. And right now, just what you're saying, Dr. Upton, with 
they have to drive. Like the, the folks that I grew up with, they have to drive an hour to go get a COVID test. And if you're sick as a dog, you're not doing it. You're just staying home. So yeah, it affects a lot of different areas that maybe you don't quite think about. And convenience and access is absolutely critical. And again, you're absolutely right, Dr. Upton, the COVID-19 has really uncovered, you know, the lack of access and inequities in communities of color. I mean, the good thing is that there have been some communities that were, you know, fairly nimble at pivoting and, you know, bringing up mobile centers and mobile um, sites where testing could be done. But it definitely took a little bit of time to be able to to make those changes and increase access, although it is still limited and we're still struggling to have um, complete access to testing for COVID-19. Yeah, and if I may uh, tell in on this, especially what Dr. Miller was talking about, that inclusiveness, that conversation that is happening in the minority community and how important it is to see people like us, to see out there pushing that message. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. African-American minority community has historically been questioning the medical community because of the things that have happened in history. That conversation is still going on where we are now with the pandemic when we have so many other different conversations going on and different theories going on so that the community does not know what to believe. We need to have like people out there to counteract those theories and saying, these are the facts. This is what's going on. This is why you need to get tested. Yes, the virus is real and you need to wear your mask. So it's very important you have people inside the lab that go out in their community and spread the message. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, just looking overall, I, I, I really, what you all were saying about how privileged is really associated with some of the tactics of curtailing this pandemic, such as even like the ability to self-quarantine or to work from home. It's really, you know, it's not really equal across the board. So what are some things do you think that we can do from the laboratory's point of view and perspective to really ameliorate the situation? Or is there anything we can do? Wow, that was a tough one. And I say it's a tough one is because the laboratory and how we are situated in the uh, healthcare environment and the delivery of healthcare, we just need to be part of that conversation. Maybe Dr. Miller and Dr. Upton can uh, verbalize it better than I can because I, I find that it's a very complex if you're asking the laboratory. What Dr. Upton mentioned earlier about the phlebotomist, that interface there, that is a very very important one that makes a difference in the patient's experience and how they feel about what the laboratory is doing, what healthcare is doing, it affects their perceptions. Maybe they can chime in some with some more information. Well, I agree that it can be tough to get that information out, but as Dr. LD said, education is the key. And I do know that many laboratories do have outreach programs and have partnerships with external organizations where they do have lab staff who are either paid or volunteer to go out into the community and go to health fairs. And even though, you know, we do have sort of limited access to other organizations, there's still, we can go out and provide information, literature that we can leave behind on the importance of that COVID-19 is real because there is some language out there in the communities of color. And I've certainly heard in the African-American community that 
COVID is not real. It's a conspiracy. And so we definitely need to get that message out loud and clear that COVID is real and that the way we can protect ourselves, all of us, but specifically in the African-American community, because we are susceptible. We have many of those chronic conditions that make us susceptible, that we need to wear the mask, that we need to social distance, and that we um, need to practice hand washing. But as you already mentioned, being able to stay at home and shelter in place is a point of privilege. And so many of the people on the front line that are considered essential workers are people from communities of color. So we need to wear our mask and social distance to protect them. That's a really important message that we need to get out to the community. It's the people that are preparing the food, the people that are in the laboratory, you know, the people that we interface with every day that are essential employees. We need to wear the mask and social distance to protect them. I want to just kind of shift uh, our conversation just a little bit because we're talking about obviously the very important aspects of, of diversity within the wider community. And obviously, you know, COVID-19 has brought out those discrepancies and made that even more apparent. Uh, let's talk about like what the current state of diversity is in the actual laboratory space. Dr. Miller, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. Yeah, so thank you for sort of giving me this assignment because you know, I hadn't looked at this data in a long time. So just looking at the literature in the last three or four years, there's been you know, quite a movement in looking at bringing diversity into um, pathology residency programs. And one article that I looked at that it's out of Harvard Medical School's characterization of applicants for residency programs. So this article was taking a look at um, the applicants for pathology at an academic center. And so over this three-year period, 2015 to 2017, there were 1,293 pathology applicants. And of those applicants, 50% were female. So, you know, we're always struggling, you know, with equity and, you know, gender equity. So the female to male ratio certainly looks great. But in terms of overall applicants from underrepresented communities, and so I'm going to just, it's not a lot of data, but I'm, I want to be clear on what, on the data that I'm presenting. So over that three-year period, 15, 16, and 17, in 2015, 12.6% of the applicants were from underrepresented community, 9.5 for 16 and 11.1 from 17. But the most interesting statistic was that of those percentages for 2015, 4.7% were U.S. medical graduates and 16 was 3.7 and 17 was 4.5. So that overall messaging is that U.S. medical graduates are not really that interested in going into pathology, so that foreign medical graduates are really filling these spaces. And I think that that's probably been a trend for several years, for many years, actually, that foreign medical graduates are filling these spaces. And still, even with that, probably about 15 to 20 percent of spaces in U.S. residency programs go unfilled, which is something I really was not aware of. So in pathology and in general and laboratory medicine as well, we're struggling to identify and have and create a diverse environment among our pathology residents. And I would certainly stand to hazard a guess that for our other allied health programs that bring in, you know, our med techs, our lab assistants, those programs are, they may have some challenges with diversity as well. 
Dr. Upton? That was a really lovely summary. Thank you so much. And I absolutely agree with Dr. Miller's concern. One problem in pathology specifically is that the freestanding pathology courses dropped out of most medical schools. So the exposure that students have on an individual basis to get to know pathologists and to get to know what we do has diminished in many places. Another important challenge is that of the major historically black medical schools, only one, which is Howard University, actually has a pathology resident associated with it. So I'd like to call attention to the work that's being done by Dr. Marissa White, Alicia Ware, and others at Hopkins. They have actually forged a program which is now being brought out by other places, including where I am at University of Washington, of offering travel scholarships and lodging support for students from historically black medical schools to do elective rotations in pathology because many of these students cannot easily travel to other medical schools to do rotations. During COVID, we actually also have a virtual rotation as a student elective, which we invite people to apply for. There are also a number of medical schools in the country that do not have pathology residencies affiliated with them. So students who attend those schools don't have an opportunity to meet pathology residents. So that's an important challenge. I'm also concerned about the fact that the number of underrepresented minorities actually applying, or I don't like that term really, because that's an old fashioned term. We might say marginalized groups rather than underrepresented minorities. Marginalized groups, of students don't, there's been a static number of people entering pathology residencies for almost 20 years among groups who are non-white. The other challenges that we're facing, and I'm glad that you mentioned, Dr. Miller, the number of women in pathology. When I started medical school, there were only 15% of my class were of women. Now there are nearly 50% in our residency programs, but now we get into the important issue of inclusion if you actually look at pathology chairs, it's still fewer than 15%. And there are very few pathology chairs who come from marginalized populations. That is really has to change. So one of the things that troubles me is that many corporations and many institutions will put women and people of color in positions for the visibility, but they will not necessarily rise to leadership ranks. So where the rubber meets the road, in my opinion, and the critical metric is, are people being included in leadership tracks? Are we recognizing the importance of leadership coming from different populations and people with diverse perspectives and diverse skill sets? That's where we have the opportunity to make a real difference. If I've learned one thing in my life, it's that what I know and what I understand is absolutely limited to within this space. And every time I meet a person who has a different cultural background or different experiences, my understanding of the world gets bigger. My ability to approach a problem and solve it creatively gets bigger. I absolutely couldn't possibly solve any problem on earth without tapping into the knowledge and resources of people who are different from me. And that message in terms of including people in leadership and giving people the power to make a difference, that's what we really need to be working on. Yes, recruiting, absolutely recruiting, and also empowering and making sure they have a voice and making sure that they internalize the idea that they have a voice, because I think that's a big hump too for, for folks. For people who have so long been told that they don't matter, 
that's an internal thing that that has to has to happen within themselves for them to realize they matter and then to act on that. Yeah, Dr. Afton, you mentioned the concept of inclusion, and as we all know, I'm sure, is that so often we hear the terms together. We hear diversity and inclusion. Why, why is inclusion important, and why is it one of the goals? Like, it should not just, our, our, everybody's goals should not just be diversity. It should be diversity and inclusion. So why, why is that important to have that dual goal? Diversity to me simply means that we have people who look different, who have different skills in the room. But are those people empowered to speak up? Do they feel that they can authentically show up? When I was in a group of very few women in medical school, I felt that if I failed a course or had a challenge, all the women would be branded as not capable of being physicians. So many people who come from underrepresented groups, whether it's women or people of color, people from a particular background, carry an extra burden of shame and visibility that they have to prove themselves and they have to work 10 times as hard as the white man in the room. And there's a consequence to that of shame, of vulnerability, of the fear of showing up. So if we talk about people in the lab as well, we have very diverse labs at the University of Washington. If you walked into our clinical laboratory, our laboratory professionals are very diverse. And I would like to see all of the individuals in that room feel welcomed, respected, that they could walk up to anyone, resident, fellow, pathologist, medical director, and ask a question, make a suggestion, eat their food freely, wear their hair the way their culture accepts that. Be authentic, be themselves, because if they cannot show up completely as the person from this is who I am, this is the culture I am. If I can't show up completely, I can't really bring all of my gifts and all of my talents and all of my observations into my work. And we need that. We need to hear different paradigms. We need to hear different perspectives to improve the way we serve our patients. And I would like to reduce the hierarchical fear that exists even now within our profession I learn so much when the laboratory professionals are able to tell me the problems they're seeing in the lab. They know their job better than I do. I'd like them to feel empowered to help lead the improvements in the laboratory. Dr. Elsie, did you have some thoughts on that as well? Yeah, um, I agree with Dr. Upton. If uh, we talk about diversity and inclusion, if I may add another word to that is belonging. That is from the personal feelings of the team member that they belong at the table. That, that is the component that we hope that we can uh, uh, water and, and bear fruit that not only is my organization diverse and, and, and inclusive, but also I have that feeling of belonging that I am here, I matter, and that part I own this. So that what I say is impactful that they actually do care about. Many times we do do uh, um, meet the diverse and inclusive part, but we need something from what well, we want the team member to actually feel that they belong as part of that organization. Once you can get that type of environment, that is a very healthy environment, healthy workplace, and you will see that you have a lowers your attrition if you're a teaching institution. Uh, uh, 
Sentara, uh, where I'm at, it covers the East Coast, the tide water, and Northern North Carolina and Virginia area. We are quite a number of uh, educational institutions, EVMS, Norfolk State, which is a, a HBCU. We have these students that come in, and many a times uh, we've had problems retaining those students when we get, do those exit interviews. They never reach to or they remark to us that they were part of the organization or they felt it was very difficult for them or it was a challenge, I guess, the environment or they didn't feel like, uh, well, or they did feel like they were just a check mark saying that the organization was not providing the proper tools to help them make it through their uh, medical technology rotation. We talk a lot, heard in the news across the nation about the school to prison pipeline. I think we need to focus on see if we can get the school to excellent pipeline for all of our marginalized groups. We need to start early. We had a few years ago, I guess, continuing that focus on getting gender equity, having more women represented in the math and science courses. Also, that that's sort of for uh, the medical field. That's where it starts. A lot of our frontline workers, you'll find, are especially for vitamins, are minority. And we find out, but when you get to more of the technical part of the medical technology, medical laboratory technicians, you find that there are less minorities there. And so what happens for that change? What is going on? If we can look at that and maybe come up with some uh, mitigation activities, sort of help make them, keep them in the loop or keep them in the pipeline. So one of the important things that has happened with um, COVID-19 and the social unrest in this country is that it has opened up a space where people can now have these conversations. So, you know, both Dr. Elsie and Dr. Upton were absolutely right on point is that diversity is one thing, inclusion is, is another. And this space that has now opened up for conversation has given and appeared to given people an opportunity to speak up and speak out. And so even if there might've been some fear or some hesitation in the past, people now feel emboldened to make a statement and say what it is that's on their heart and what's on their mind in terms of, I work in this place, I have a right to share my opinion, I have a right to bring my authentic self and my real self to work and into this community. And so I'm here to help and support so organizations should take the opportunity, just like individuals have taken the opportunity, to reach into people and invite them to come in and share their op opinions and be part of this change. Yeah, absolutely. It's like employers need to be able to create that safe space, right, for people to have those conversations. Um, you guys have already kind of gone over why it's important for us to have make those. Maybe, Dr. Elsie, you can start. What are some of the ways we can, in the laboratory, create those safe spaces for people? Well, one of the things my organization did, we actually had a forum that we called a safe space. And it was extremely important. We found these sessions were overwhelmingly well received. Uh, they created an outlet for minority team members to want to recognize that they were not alone and to learn how to support each other. Uh, at my conversation, the need for it was for these conversations with a firm, but because we had such a large number of participants. And it was also the sentiment in the, that we found out in that conversation that this conversation was a long time coming to be able to talk about race opening 
as Dr. Miller was alluding to earlier, now that we have this conversation, we got, it's like you open the, the well up and it's just overflowing. And it was important to address this conversation, especially with the, the videos and the things that we were seeing almost on a daily basis coming out, the trauma that's being caused by repeated exposure to videos capturing violence and aggression against black and brown people. It is critical that people are given the permission to seek care by naming and describing some of the psychological effects of, a, of that emotional trauma. You have shock, denial, disbelief, guilt, feelings, anxiety, fear. You have all of these feelings and people do not stop being themselves when they walk into the workplace. They still have to deal with those feelings right there in the workplace. You have that, then it's compounded by if there are activities going on in the workplace, what do I need to do? And as Dr. Upton uh, mentioned earlier, do I want to stand out? Is it safe for me to stand out? Can I go to my manager? Can I go to human resources? Is my job in jeopardy? These are very important questions that need uh, consideration because I still have my bills to pay. I still have food I need to buy. I have children I need to take care of. You having a safe and an open forum for employees to express their thoughts and feelings at least begins the healing process to have that conversation. There are things you need to be concerned about we can talk about later, but I think that is a great starting point is to talk about it and try to get everybody, you need everyone from the, the boardroom to the front lines to be there. You'll be surprised at the information that's shared if people can do it anonymously and feel that they're being heard. Dr. Upton? Thank you so much. I really appreciate so much the remarks that both Dr. Miller and Dr. Elsie have shared. Another element that I think is very important is debt mitigation. Many of the students of color and students whom I know from rural or underserved backgrounds have additional financial burdens that are not apparent to white middle class students. A number of my residents from underserved backgrounds have also been supporting their parents on a resident salary and paying off medical school debt. Many of the students of color have significantly more medical school debt and undergraduate debt because in general, families from color backgrounds and people from rural white backgrounds, low socioeconomic white backgrounds, don't have resources. Their families do not have the wealth or the resources to make going to school a straightforward process. So the debt is enormous and the burden of debt. So then as Dr. Elsie has indicated, let's just say you're also caring for elderly parents in your home while you're going to medical school or going through residency or going through laboratory school. And then one of your parents gets ill, your children get ill. We need to, in residency programs, if you have a baby, that has to come out of your vacation time if you want to take more than a couple of weeks off, and that's unacceptable. We absolutely have to begin to have paid family leave, maternity leave and paternity leave, so that people can manage these responsibilities. Our wonderful phlebotomists can become medical laboratory assistants. They can become medical laboratory technologists. They can become medical laboratory specialists if our institutions will provide tuition reimbursement for them so that they can ratchet their way up through this education. They have the intelligence, they have the drive. The jobs we have have good benefits, many of them, and families would like to have jobs that have good salaries and good benefits. And 10% of our laboratory positions are open. 
without people filling them right now. Actually, one of the things that came up as I was listening to both these wonderful participants is, as the chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for ASCP, we would really like people to share best practices from where you work, from your own group, from your own experience. Share with us your stories, because this will help us share these stories with others. We plead. And we now are going to have sections in our annual meeting for health equity posters and for education. We already have an area of education. Let's brainstorm. Let's put together best practices. The safe space idea is a very important idea. Mm -hmm. Inviting people to correct me is something I've done. And people feel free to tell me that I recently learned, and I was embarrassed to learn, that I had been saying black with a small b. It's a capital B. That's respectful, but I was not aware of that. So part of the conversation is saying, I appreciate your feedback. And if I say something that you ever experienced as disrespectful or uninformed, I would like to be informed. And the way I've done that, people recognize it is safe to tell me that I'm not being respectful or that I'm using a term that's not politically correct. We want all of us to be, I think most of us want to be respectful. <laughs> so if we're open to having someone say, hey, you know, the way you asked me about such and such hurt my feelings, that's important Those to have the safety to have those conversations with our colleagues so that we can grow and learn together is very important. Go ahead, Dr. Miller. One of the important ways I think that we can, you know, help people, you know, find or, or you know, our colleagues, you know, find their way sort of up the ladder of um, progressive responsibility is to be mentors to them. Creating and having a strong mentoring program and making it visible so that staff understand that the ways who they can approach to get advice and counsel on how I can improve myself or how I can maybe access funding so that I can get additional training. So mentoring programs are an incredibly important piece of what we can do in every lab and can, can do that. Captain? Thank you for giving me the opportunity to put in a plug that we have now built an ASCP mentorship program. And I invite both of you to join or to suggest to others to join. And people can check off a box if they're willing to mentor or they want to be mentored, someone from an underrepresented background, because we deliberately know that some individuals will be in a workplace where they don't have access to mentorship from someone from a similar cultural background. Sometimes we want to be mentored by somebody from a, actually a different cultural background, but sometimes we want someone who understands where we come from. So we give a lot of options. So please consider everyone on the call joining our mentorship program. If you're a student, you can mentor a junior student. I think all of us on this call have learned that we learn so much from mentoring. We learn so much from mentees. It's probably, I learn more from the students whom I work with than they ever could imagine. So, you know, a lot of us in our quest to become, you know, MDs and PhDs, we heard that adage, you know, see one, teach one, see one, do one, teach one. <laughs> and so that applies to life and this applies to mentoring, you know, and it applies to supporting, you know, and encouraging people from all walks of life and encouraging diversity and inclusion. So we need to continue that see one, do one, teach one in our lives. <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm really hearing from all of you is that personal 
educational journey, right? I mean, it, it is through our own increasing our own self-awareness, either through learning and educating ourselves or receiving feedback from others. Because once we become aware, that's how we can really change our behavior and change our reactions and change uh, what we do. But if we're looking at the larger concept of diversity and inclusion in the laboratory, whose responsibility is it to ensure that there is diversity and inclusion in the laboratory? Dr. Elsie? Yes, that, that is such a good question. Of course, it's the leadership, it's your organization. We're talking about your culture. Uh, starts right there in the boardroom. You have to decide what type of organization do you want to have? Do you want to represent the community that you serve? Do you want to make a difference? Do you want to not only the physical healing, but also be part of the spiritual healing conversation that needs to take place when you're serving uh, your, your patients? Leadership is so important for us to in this journey, as uh, Dr. Miller was saying, in all parts of your life, as mentoring, well, it, it, it is it is the same thing here for an organization. You need to mentor your employees. You need to be a mirror for them so that you do or you exhibit the same types of traits that you want your employees uh, to have. One of the insights that came out of the um, safe space sessions were that there was an enormous amount of tension and negative feelings around minority employee workplace racial perceptions. Leaders should be aware that there is a conversation going on among minority employees that they may not be aware of. Transparency in the hiring and promoting process goes a long way in fostering feelings of fairness in the organization. If employees do not understand or are not aware of how things are done, they will create their own story which may not be the reality. If you don't let people know what's going on, they'll take one little tidbit and they'll create a whole story around it. So I cannot overemphasize that the organization need to be transparent. Another part of that, they need to own the shortcomings to say, yes, this is an area that we have not been meeting and this is what we're going to, going to do. This is exactly what happened at, Mount, at Centera. As a corporate policy, they decided to start the diversity, inclusion, and equity program. And my hospital, which is the largest hospital, Centera Norfolk Jones, decided they wanted to do something else to complement the corporate policy and form the diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, council, which I'm a member of, because they want to get out in front of the issue. Because regardless of where a minority employee sits on the corporate ladder from the front line to the boardroom, it is highly likely they have in some way been affected by racial events, sometimes unconsciously, and therefore could benefit from participating and from having, knowing that their organization hey, says, hey, I know things are going on. I know and I care that they are bothering you. What can we do to go forward to become healing and help us? acknowledge the areas that may be going on that we need to focus on to eliminate, to make it a more healthy work environment. Absolutely. I think that that aspect that you referenced about ownership, you know, like even just saying like, oh, I don't think we've, we've done enough on this subject or, you know, here we are changing. I think it's really, really, it is very impactful and tremendous. I remember this was years ago reading an analysis of leaders who had made mistakes. And then there were there were basically two groups, one leaders who took ownership of their mistake and then what transpired afterwards. And then those who did not, who kind of, you know, sort of acknowledged it, but not really. And just, you know, clearly that was not the less successful group of the two, because I think there's something so incredibly powerful 
about taking ownership and taking an accountability. So absolutely, thank you for bringing it up. Dr. Miller? So it, again, it's a very global statement, but it's everybody's responsibility in the entire organization regarding embracing diversity and inclusion. And the work that is done toward diversity and inclusion should be intentional. It should be part of the strategic plan of the organization with smart goals, just like we have smart goals for everything else. It should be measurable. It should be timely. There should be an absolute objective at the end. And there needs to be multiple people at the table to create those diversity and inclusion goals in that strategic plan. Many organizations, they leave it to the people at the top, you know, to make these sort of glorified goals for the organization without input from people throughout the entire organization. So the goal of diversity and inclusion should be intentional. It should be a smart goal. And there should be input from everyone at every level of the organization because it's that, that diversity of thought and creativity that helps the goal be attainable. Dr. Upton? Thank you. Another element to follow on the comments of Dr. Miller, which I absolutely agree with, is that the responsibility for diversity and inclusion cannot be on the backs of the people from the marginalized groups. Too often, the person of color becomes the person in that group who has to do all the heavy lifting for diversity and inclusion. And in many academic organizations, they don't give any time for that. If someone were running a major course in the medical school, they might get 25% of their time off of clinical work to do the work of made, developing that educational program for the medical students. A diversity and inclusion program, if someone is asked to do that, should be seen as important to the academy. It is a form of scholarship. It's a scholarship of dissemination and a scholarship of pulling together, a scholarship of synthesis. It should be recognized as such. People should have protected time if they're going to be asked to do that, and that should count toward promotion. So if we're really going to walk the walk, we have to resource that. We have to give people the time, consider it so important that we're going to pay them to do that. We're going to recognize that for promotion. I'd also like to mention another element, that what does a leader look like? Mm -hmm. Every single one of you looks like a leader, and every single one of you is going to have to lead something in your life, whether it's leading a program because you have a child with a learning style difference, or leading a program in your neighborhood because there's a problem with the police in your neighborhood. And so we need to view every employee as a potential leader, and part of our annual evaluation with every single employee is defining with that person's stretch goals and stretch opportunities, and then resourcing that to give them the skills and the training to improve their skills and to grow. The implication, the fundamental assumption when we hire anyone is that you are so valuable that I'm going to invest in you to grow and develop. I want you to stay here. I want you to maximize your potential. I want you to soar. Because you have aptitudes and skills and talents I don't have, and I want you to fulfill your maximum potential. And that's what inclusion is, that I believe in you. I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to help you become successful. That's what it really means. It's a, and it's a person-to-person -person conversation. And as one very great teacher said, 
It's when two or three are gathered together. It's not a bunch of corporate language. It's about the relationship of empowerment and trust between two individuals, whether it's a supervisor and an employee or a chair and a faculty member or a faculty member and a resident. But it's that sense that you are going to do a good job. I wouldn't hire you if I didn't believe in you. And we're going to help you get the skills and coaching you need because all of us have gaps. We all have things that we don't know and we all have needs for resources to help us improve. So we, what we need is we need to learn the self-awareness of identifying our own gaps. But that's what, as Dr. Miller and Dr. Elsie said, that's what the mentors are also there for. When we hire someone, it is hallowed ground. And some of you may or may not know that I wrote a song that I sang when I became president. Each drop of blood and each piece of flesh is a sacred trust. And we pledge our best. That's what we do in the lab. Every patient's flesh and blood is sacred. And every employee is similarly that important and that precious to us, or it should be. 100% agree, Dr. Upton. I think the three of you have really talked about sort of what we need to be aware of when we have these sort of discussions and when we start these sort of programs. And we really make an effort and follow through on our responsibility to have diverse include uh, diverse teams with included people, right? I want to kind of shift to um, what are some of the pitfalls we need to be aware of? What are some things that maybe we we do and we think we're doing a good job, but we're not, or, or that sort of thing. Is that, Dr. Altsy, let's start with you. What are some of the pitfalls that we need to be aware of? Well, racial discussions are very complex. Uh, they're very, many people are passionate about them. So one of the things we did, an organization should do to be aware of, when we had our safe spaces, we had a trained counselor and an employee assistant representative available during and after each session to share contact information in case a team member needed it. In addition, they cannot be, it cannot be a one and done without any follow-up. That does more harm than good because it shows a minority employee, you were just going through the motions. You didn't really mean it, but you were just doing it just to check it off. And it makes the minority employee or the marginalized community even more cynical than they were previously. Something needs to come out of the discussion, perhaps a formalized committee to put forth diversity and inclusion initiatives. Uh, then this, the discussion should be monitored in case it needs to be closed down. Many people join and participate from a place of learning. There are two main categories, people that just wanted to know they were not alone and share their thoughts and pain, and those that wanted to understand the pain and learn how to support it. So. You have to be careful when you, when you begin this discussion. And as I have a counselor, some managers, and um, that you need to be prepared for some of the answers or some of the information you hear and do not personalize it. Many times when we become a, have a racial discussion, we hear them, but what we're saying, we're hearing from a defensive posture. Well, we're saying, it's not me. I'm not like that. And but that conversation, what they're sharing, they're not talking about you, they're talking about their own life experience. So you have to be careful, be in a place of learning, of open, and just come from understanding. That is the starting point. And once you get this information, you gather it all together, then you need to do something with it. Where do you wanna go? 
uh, you've got this data, how are you going to aggregate it, get it together, evaluate it, and then come up with some programs or some initiatives that you can do? And as we were talking about, uh, Dr. Upton mentioned you have your SMART goals. How are we going to come back and we're going to measure it? Do we need to change something? Was this effective? What was the outcome? Uh, if, because not everything is going to work, and we can do some of those things better. So it's just so important to understand and to appreciate that you're dealing with a difficult subject. And sometimes emotions can get very heated, but that's okay. You have some resources there to help moderate it and, and continue to move forward. I think some of the learning experiences when we had our safe spaces. Dr. Miller, did you have anything? Thank you, Dr. Elsie. That is, you know, a great opportunity for organizations because some organizations feel that the workplace is not the place to have those conversations and it is absolutely yeah. the place those have conversations because we spend so much time at work as well as some of the people that are colleagues outside of work or people that we work <laughs> with so the workplace is definitely a place to have these conversations again with safeguards in place and parameters in place to continue the conversation because again one of the other things that has certainly come out of this intersection of COVID-19 and, and the social unrest is that this is a conversation that needs to be had through every aspect of our lives, through all aspects of our lives. And so the workplace is not exempt from that. And then just one thing I just want to just thank you know, Dr. Upton for saying is that when we you know, give opportunities for mentorship and for projects and for growth to our staff, we have to provide them with resources and time. To give somebody a project and they have to do it on their own time and they're not getting paid for it, that's not really a project. That's not mentorship. That's abuse. So um, <laughs> it is. It just is. So we have to give people, if we give them a project, we have to give them time and resources to do it. And more often than not, people definitely step up and meet that challenge. Yes, I second that, definitely the resources. And that's a challenge right now with, with the pandemic. My organization's seen that in the laboratory. Financial responses have been hiring freezes, and it seems like we've been, it's endemic in the laboratory that we're short-staffed, we're being asked to do more with less. But at the same time, we cannot neglect that fact that we are still, we want people to come into the uh, profession, uh, we want our young people to come. We want to find Excel in the laboratory. So as Dr. Upton and Dr. Miller said, we need the resources. We need to have them there. And we have to impart upon our leadership that this is an important thing that we're doing. It's important for organization and important for the communities that we serve. So we're all talking about how important it is to have these diverse and inclusive environments. What is your each of your visions of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Who would like to begin? Yeah, in, in your perfect utopia, you're looking out in the future, what do your workplaces look like? Well, I would say workplace should reflect your community that you're, you're delivering healthcare. That's, that's the utopia. That's the utopia that we're going to consistently strive for is that anybody from uh, any child, any teenager, any college person that has that inkling, that has that, that gift that they want to help heal people, that they want to come into the lab, they want to be that scientist, that they 
know that there are resources there and that they're going to be judged exactly on their skill level and what they bring to the table and not by unbiased or stereotypical or prejudiced type of thinking that they can feel that they can come and as uh, dr upton said be their authentic self that is what i would like to see so you have all these other stressors and problems in your life that hey when you come into the laboratory i know i'm in the safe place and that I'm valued and that I can be the best that I can be. So my utopian laboratory pathology science um, world would be the community would have equitable access to healthcare, and that we can meet all the patient's needs. You know, one place where we constantly struggle and have been struggling my lifetime with the Red Cross is meeting the transfusion needs of patients with sickle cell disease. And so we do have competing priorities, you know, in our lives as well as, you know, throughout our organizations. But in my utopian society, we would not have any struggle with meeting the transfusion needs of our sickle cell patients. They would be able to lead their healthiest lives and have access to the blood and technology that they need to live their best and fullest lives. Those are such wonderful answers. I have been mentoring in summer programs where students from backgrounds that are marginalized communities come in to look at health careers. And there is one program at University of Washington, and every year the students ask me, is healthcare a right or is healthcare mm -hmm. a responsibility? And I think it's a partnership. And I actually really loved the way both of you spoken about this, that we actually have a patient champions program in ASCP where we have patients come to our annual meeting and work with us around their needs. For instance, with kidney disease, the estimated GFRs that is used for to calculate glomerular filtration rate for African Americans is based on a false assumption of a real racial difference between Black Americans and White Americans, when in fact, it's a myth that there are racial differences. Race is a socio-political construct, but there really is no biological basis to separate people into races. It is actually a spurious notion. And there is such genetic heterogeneity among people with different skin colors that the concept of race is archaic. But I would really like to see us understand that we are all members of the human race, and that we need to have a partnership with our patients to serve their needs so that ideally our leadership does reflect those patients, but also partners with those communities so that we serve up the care we need in the form that the community needs it, whether it's a mobile van or whether it is a workplace-based program or a school-based program. Yeah, seriously, totally great answers. Um, I feel like we're just saving saving the world here one hour at a time. So yeah, th thank you guys so much uh, for this discussion. It was really great. Yeah, thank you so much. I think we, I mean, this is clearly a uh, very important topic to discuss and I hope we continue to discuss it. I think we all learned a lot. I love some things that I wrote down that I particularly enjoyed were speak up and speak out and just the concept of uh, bringing authenticity to the workplace and making sure that we're inviting everybody to be their authentic selves in whichever way that means and really looking at creating those safe spaces and professional development opportunities for all. So again, thank you all so very much. Dr. Upton, did you have any closing thoughts? 
I just wanted to follow up something that Dr. Elsie said that I thought was so important. He, of course, has this ID and I don't. So he's very aware of the psychological component of work. But particularly Black Americans have a need to have the strength to be strong, to be continuously strong. And that is destructive over time. And women, as a woman, we also feel we have to be continuously strong. So also, to me, a truly welcoming workplace is a place where I can occasionally take a break and admit my vulnerability. If I have to always be strong and power up, and no matter what's going on in my community with the police or what I'm watching on TV or what I'm learning about the trauma or the deaths of people in my community from COVID, if I have to always power up and be strong at work, it's not inclusive workplace. Yeah. We breathe in and we breathe out. Our muscle flexes and our muscle relaxes. It's counterphysiological to expect people to be super men and super women and not be able to attend to the need for a break, whether it's an FMLA or a mental health break or a fun break to address our total psychology. And that's one of the challenges we have in the lab in general with burnout and stress is that people are working incredibly hard. The RVU crunch has gone up. We're short-staffed in the lab. We're short-staffed in pathology. We cannot be strong all the time, and we need to admit that and take care of each other. All right. On that note, I want to remind everyone, I want to remind our listeners that you can listen to our podcast through uh, your favorite podcast aggregator. And hey, tell your friends, tell everyone, tell everyone about Inside the Lab. And finally, don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website, www.acp.org.